Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. I have what I hope will be a treat for you today. Last weekend I was at Sabre Seminar, which is an annual baseball conference in Boston. A bunch of us baseball nerds get together in a big room and listen to each other talk about baseball. And I thought it would be fun to follow up on one of the best talks I saw on the podcast. So one of the big challenges facing major league teams today is that they're all hiring armies of smart analysts, front office folks who can come up with great ideas and ways to improve players. The problem is figuring out how to apply those ideas. You need some way for those insights to get from the front office to the field. So more and more teams are looking for people who can speak fluent front office, but are also at home with players, possibly because they were one. So I listened to a Q&A with two recently retired big league players who are now working for teams in that kind of hybrid front office field staff role, trying to synthesize their experience as players and their interest in analytics to try to translate those statistical insights in a way that won't alienate the athletes. So we're welcoming them in right now. First, I will greet John Baker, who had a seven-year big league career with the Marlins and Padres and Cubs. He's now a baseball operations assistant for the Cubs. John, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. And next, I will welcome Brian Bannister, who pitched in the majors for the Mets and the Royals and is now listed directly below Bill James on the front office page of the website for the Boston Red Sox, who have made him their director of pitching analysis and development. Hello, Brian. Good to be here. So first of all, for the benefit of people who weren't at Sabre Seminar last weekend, could you give us a a quick rundown of your jobs, when you started them, what your duties and responsibilities are? I guess we can start with Brian since he started first. You know, I, I was always very interested in anything having to do with development for pitchers. And with the new tools and the new data and the new information out there now, I, I just uh, really foresaw a new role coming into existence uh, with major league clubs and uh, with their minor league farm systems as far as implementing this information uh, to help pitchers be developed more efficiently, to make uh, more informed decisions. And, uh, you know, the Red Sox gave me the opportunity to start something like this and to be involved. And uh, it's really grown from there. Uh, so I have the privilege of working with almost every department within the Red Sox organization with a lot of talented people uh, and really just try and complement and add value to everything they do uh, on the pitching side of the equation. And John? Yeah, so I started working for the Chicago Cubs um, in December of uh, 2015. My uh, last year playing was last year, so I was done playing right around June. Uh, I finally got released, and then I got this job right before the new year started. Um, and uh, kind of similar to Brian, uh, my job is fluid in that it, it, tra- it, it transfers from different department to different department. But as I kind of search for my own niche uh, moving forward, and I've kind of settled into uh, the mental skills department with the Chicago Cubs, uh, but at the same time, uh, I still contribute to kind of every avenue uh, that we that we do here in Chicago, whether it be uh, pro scouting or amateur scouting, uh, player development, um, as well as kind of serving as an assistant or part time coach uh, to a lot of the a lot of the major league players as well. And at the same time, I'm also uh, learning more about uh, data analytics and sabermetrics uh, as well. Yeah. And so that was something that Brian was interested in during his career. And he became a kind of internet hero because he would actually talk about these stats that we were all thinking about when he was just coming off the mound. So you kind of developed that way, I take it more so after you retired, or how did that evolution come about? Well, I think that a lot of the theories that um, we thought about while we were playing and were supported by the new data, 
And so, you know, the more you play the game, it's like you come from two different perspectives, right? You come from people on the outside that are uh, trying to analyze it, trying to add it up and trying to make sense of it. And then you come from people on the inside that have, have for years have heard these tenets of how you have to do things. And they start to think that maybe there's better ways or there's different ways to think about things. And then when you ask, you know, these coaches that have been around for 30 or 40 years for some evidence backing what they have to say, they don't have it. Uh, and so that's what really got me thinking about it. It kind of came through, came about through advanced scouting as a catcher. I wanted to know, you know, where we could best attack opposing hitters. I wanted to know why our defense was positioned in certain ways. And it really got me interested in learning about uh, baseball from, kind of from a more complete perspective. You know, when you're playing, your goals are really fine. They're very narrow, the things you're thinking about. I mean, if you boil it down to a hitter, what you're trying to do is react as, as best as possible and hit a ball with a stick. So understanding all of the information doesn't necessarily help. Uh, but when you're catching... Um, and you're and you're worried about setting up the defense, or you're worried about following a scouting report, uh, or you're worried about the things that your pitchers can and can't do. Um, then information again here is that it's definitely king there, and that's the that's where that's what got me interested in it, and that's what kind of sent me down this path of of trying to learn more about um, this side of the game. I feel like after playing for about 15 seasons, it'll probably take me about 15 more years, and then I'll feel like I have a complete understanding of baseball. <laughs> so yeah, if you get there, let the rest of us know. So I will ask you a lot about, you know, what works when you talk to players and how you get through to players, but I'm kind of curious about what doesn't work also. And I'm wondering whether you guys have any stories from your own careers. I'm sure you both had great coaches and you were on the same page with them. You probably at least at some point had some coaches that you didn't work well with and whatever they tried to impart to you just didn't work for whatever reason. Maybe it worked for other players, but not for you. So do you have any stories about times when coaching went wrong in your own career? Yeah, I could jump in and start. I've got, I've got a couple of good ones about lessons that I learned, um, that kind of, that were, you know, from the old school that actually kind of translated into the new school. When I played uh, in AAA with the Oakland A's, our manager was a man named Tony DeFrancisco, who was kind of briefly the interim manager of the Houston Astros a few years ago. Um, and he's been a very successful uh, minor league manager, and a lot of times at the cost of um, his players actually liking him, uh, which I always <laughs> found fascinating. The team kept winning. And, and I, at first I thought, you know, young and naive, I thought that it was in spite of this man. But um, the more I thought about the lessons that I learned from him, the more I realized that, uh, no, in fact, he was teaching me really valuable stuff. Right. And, and the first one being, I was a catcher in AAA and, and in AAA, you don't make a ton of money. And he would find me basically in two areas. One was if we walked the leadoff man of the hit of the, of the inning, he would find me a hundred dollars. And it, it seems it's, it was so unfair. I thought at the time, because as the catcher, I was not in, I was not in control of, of throwing the pitch. Right. right. But when you look at the percentage of uh, first batters on in an inning that score, um, you realize the importance in this idea. And further, as the catcher, um, it's your responsibility to, to make a break in the rhythm and go out and stop it and try to reset something if the count gets to 102030 really quick. And so he was putting this pressure and this stress on me, not necessarily to have anything to do with throwing the pitch, but to manage the person on the mound to get them back into the strike zone. So I had to start thinking of new strategies and ways so that I didn't have to pay this $100, right? And so I think about that coaching strategy um, and how he put all this pressure on me as the catcher, but... Over the long haul after that, the next 10 years that I played, that I, those ideas really paid off. And then they were, they were, when, when we started adding everything up a couple of years ago, it really kind of was highlighted in the, in the information that we had that this is actually something that you need to worry about as a, as a catcher. You have to call a change up 2-0 to the first batter of the game or call a, a curveball, whatever your guy can throw for a strike 2-0, because walking that first leadoff man, at least especially the first one of the game, usually has dire consequences. 
And he did the same thing with uh, with pitching leverage situations with a bullpen with a bullpen pitcher. Anybody in the bullpen coming out of the um, coming into the uh, game, um, if we gave up a hit on the first pitch to score runs, if they came in like in a you know in a three two game with two guys on and two outs, if we gave up a hit on the first pitch, it was also a fine for us as well. So it made us really focus on what are the key moments in a baseball game? When is there the most pressure on us to be sure with our pitch selection? Uh, and so I, I think about the lessons that I learned from Tony as kind of lessons in sabermetrics without actually talking about sabermetrics, right? Without actually bringing up, here's all the, here's all the, here's all the data that we have in the background to support why I'm right. He would just yell at me because we gave up a hit in the eighth inning on a, on an OO slider to a breaking ball hitter with runners on first and second that scored a run to tie the game. And he would get upset with me over that. Why didn't I think more about the pitch I was going to make? Why didn't we set up in a better location? Um, obviously assuming that it wasn't an execution error of the pitcher. Uh, but, you know, so I think those are, that was a good, that's a good story about how sometimes coaching doesn't necessarily give you the things that you want to, that, that, that you think it's giving you at the time. But as you look back later, you realize that these important lessons that we learn in baseball as we come up and develop in the minor leagues are, obviously going to be highlighted in the big leagues, um, but they're also going to be supported. And I've noticed that a lot more, that the best coaches that I had kind of pre-sabermetrics era or guys that never thought about it, those guys, all of their ideas are supported by the data that we have now. Brian? You know, my thing about pitching is that I, I question everything in a good way because I don't know where concepts or ideas originated. And, and pretty much everything that's ever been told to me one, I tried it, and my goal was always to be the most coachable guy on the team. Uh, but I also realized that if something didn't work for me, I shouldn't do it because ultimately the bottom line is your production on the field. But whether it comes to right-handers have to pitch on the third base side of the rubber because that's the most deceptive place to pitch, or pitchers have to come to a balance point, or a changeup has to be 10 miles an hour or more slower than your fastball, or pitchers need to pitch with a downhill plane, or the fastball is most effective when located down in a way. I've pretty much debunked all of those pitching concepts that are just rehashed over and over again to every pitching prospect that comes along. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with almost all of them completely. <laughs> that's, that's the joy of studying pitching on a daily basis and having information to actually quantify uh, those instructions because I think those things, as innocent as they seem, have destroyed more pitchers' careers over the years than anything else without realizing it. And so, you know, my goal is to always unlock a pitcher's potential and not hold them back. And so I try to do my due diligence to make sure anything I ever tell a pitcher is in his best interest and will further his career instead of just rehashing something that was told to me without uh, investigating it for myself. See, that's what I wanted. I wanted to hear that everyone was wrong about everything. <laughs> I, I asked John for a coaching horror story and he pays someone a compliment about how great his coaching technique was. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you, he was, he, he would, he would, he would, he would yell at us a lot, man. It was funny. And, and I, I will say if you had asked me the same question in 2005, I would have been like, Oh, I hate this guy. Uh, but then, but then as I, as I made my major league debut and played for one, I saw him years later, I actually apologized to him for the way I'd thought about him in the past. So yeah, there is good still in baseball, Ben. It's not just, it's not, it's not just all, it's not just all crazy people being mean with, with, with no information, just running, running out on the field. There, there are still people trying. 
All right. And so, Brian, I know that initially you weren't working hands-on with players that regularly. You were kind of talking to the front office and maybe talking to the field staff and playing this sort of go-between role. And then there was this conversation with Rich Hill that has already taken on these mythical proportions, both in his career and yours, I guess. And, you know, it, it seems to have been this transformative conversation that kind of changed your role in the organization and also changed his trajectory completely. So, can you give me some sense of uh, what went on in that conversation? If you had attended Sabre Seminar in the past, you know that I always talked about new or alternative or more efficient ways to develop pitchers. And so I think that was always my passion. Once I retired, I spent years doing my own research on ways to teach pitchers differently how to succeed at the highest level. And I was planning on starting my own business, uh, similar to driveline baseball or something of that nature, where it's it's an alternative for pitchers to come learn, use new forms of data, use the things that I've learned over the years, and become better pitchers. And so that was always my passion. The difficulty was there was really nothing formal like that established in a major league organization. And so... I transitioned into the Red Sox, originally interviewed for the assistant farm director role. And then just through conversation, you know, I think my my passion for pitching development shined through. So I, I got an opportunity to be a scout uh, on the pro side. Uh, but but on the side, I was constantly doing pitching analysis and, and trying to establish that this is a viable form and a viable way to evaluate pitchers using this new data. And so I ended up doing 90% of the analytics stuff and only 10% of the scouting. And I kept spending all of my day doing the pitching analytics side. And I was even finding it hard to focus on the scouting side. And so I think after a year, we realized that, you know, maybe I should be pushed more into the pitching side of the equation. And with Rich Hill, I had already completed all my pro scouting for the year. And I really hadn't had an opportunity to talk with any of our organizational pitchers directly, which is always my passion. And, you know, Rich was there in Pawtucket. You know, his his journey is well documented. His his history in the league is well documented. And because of John's battle with cancer and the coaching shifts that had occurred as a result of that, uh, I just happened to stop by Pawtucket with Gus Quattlebaum, our pro scouting director, and Rich was there. But there wasn't actually a pitching coach there that day because everybody was in transition. Uh-huh. Uh, Dick Such from our uh, Gulf Coast League was coming up to take Bob Kipper's place, our AAA pitching coach, because he was now in the big leagues in the bullpen. And so there was just this vacuum. And all year I had been waiting for an opportunity to talk with some of our pitchers and, and apply all these techniques that I had literally spent years working on. And it just was a perfect storm where Rich – had been a journeyman, uh, had battled Tommy John, had done all these things. And here he was, he knows who he is. He has major league experience and he was just looking for an edge. And I just took that opportunity because it was a low risk situation to throw some new ideas at him that he had probably never heard before. And he bought in and I gave him credit. He had to go out there and throw the ball and execute. But it was one of the most amazing five game runs I had ever seen in my life. Yeah. And so here's a guy who had a great curveball who had a lot of talent, who's left-handed, which is always a plus. And he just did something that I'd never seen before. And that got me excited. But yes, it's it's taken on a life of its own. But it also was exciting because it was kind of like the light bulb going on, like, hey, this stuff can work. All this time I've put in, if you give it to people who are way more talented than I was as a pitcher, 
really, really good things can happen. And if it's delivered in the right way and there's buy-in and there's trust there. And I think that's what we've seen with Rich. And that's what's so exciting about what he's done over the last year. Yeah. And I mean, it's amazing that he, you know, turned into basically the best pitcher in the league almost overnight, which is incredible. And I would imagine that usually if you want to really reinvent a guy or even just give him something new to think about, you know, maybe you want to try to do that during the offseason or during spring training when there's less pressure, you have more time to work on things. Is it common for a player to be able to make such a dramatic change in their approach the way that Hill did? One of the most difficult things in pitching development, especially in the minor leagues, and this is something I've always struggled with, is that the pitchers who are the true prospects that really have the highest major league ceiling, because there's so much money invested in them from the amateur draft or, or from the international signing, that I think everybody's scared to actually tell them what they need to be told to become successful major league pitchers because just the dynamic of it, you know, everybody's afraid to break them or hurt them or change them, which could potentially take away their deception or the movement on their pitches. And so they really never get the attention that they deservedly should get. And so it often ha happens where guys picked lower in the draft or the non-prospects or the sleepers, they tend to be the beneficiaries of more information or more focused attention by the pitching coaches because it's perceived that they're lower risk or, you know, if, if we try something with this guy and it doesn't work, you know, oh, well, that guy's a 22nd rounder. And, and that's not fair to the kid, but that's how it happens a lot of the times. And so you see these pitchers come out of nowhere and it's really because somebody told them what they needed to hear and got them over the hump and, and turned them into a successful big leaguer. And so that dynamic has always been fascinating to me because I was a middle round pick. And so to me, I'm a low risk guy. There's not a lot of money invested in me. And I, I through my own initiative, made changes to myself as a pitcher. And I was never a top prospect. And I never had a high major league ceiling. But it always fascinated me that with a few changes or giving the guy the right mental approach, the right physical approach, the right pitch mix, the development of a new pitch, you can completely change his projection or his future ceiling if it's if it's an informed and quantified decision and that player receives that information. And so that's something that I've just had in my head for years that most guys have the potential to pitch in the big leagues. You just have to give them the right ingredients. And so that's that's what the bulk of my studies have been and research have been on in order to quantify that. So as a group, everybody can be on the same page where we're not we're not scared to do that or hesitant to do that because we're going to break the guy. But we're actually providing him with that help and that instruction in a quantified way that he needs to turn him into a major league pitching prospect. Yeah. And I think, John, you might have mentioned, maybe you both mentioned that players get more resistant to change as they climb the ladder, as they have more success and as they get closer to the big leagues and that a suggestion you might make successfully in a ball could get you laughed out of the clubhouse in the majors. So at what point in the chain does that happen? Is there like a, a specific level at which you start to see that guys think maybe they don't need as much help anymore? Yeah, I, I, I like it's the big leagues for sure. It's in the major leagues because once you once you reach the major leagues, you've 
you've arrived at that point. And so guys, you know, you have to have a kind of inflated sense of self-confidence to be able to succeed at that level. You know, you have to believe that you can be successful against like really long odds. And so guys uh, really trust a lot of times what they've done to get there. Um, it's much easier to reach people below because all those people are still trying to move up um, one more level. It's, it's harder to convince somebody that this new information might take them from Jose Batista on the Pirates to Jose Batista on the Blue Jays uh, or Josh Donaldson in the minor leagues to Josh Donaldson in the big leagues. It's hard. It's hard to convince those guys that they're going to be able to make that jump once they're already at the major league level because they feel like, hey, I've gotten here. And, you know, guys th- goes through cycles. Uh, Joe Madden talks about it, but guys go through cycles in the big leagues of, you know, they're happy to be there. Then now they just want to stay. You know, now they want to make some money. Uh, now they want to be an all-star. And then now, finally, now I can just like want to win, right? He talks about kind of this, these stages of developments and people's thinking. And when you're talking about their own kind of physical skills, it can be really difficult at the major league level to try to get somebody to do something drastically different physically because they're going to be so worried about the success they're going to have in the future. Whereas in the minor leagues, it's much easier to convince people to do things differently because the objective there always is to move to the next level. You know, the, the major league level is to get there, stay and win. The minor league levels are I need to I need to do as well as I can to get out of here as fast as possible and get to the next level because the end goal is always going to be uh, in the major leagues. And, and that's what I've really noticed is that, you know, it's harder for um, even with all the information that we have and all the stuff that we do at the major league level and the wonderful coaches that we have. It's harder to try to get guys like Jason Hayward to make um, adjustments, even though he is, you know, he has become a very coachable uh, player with us in, in Chicago. And he does the best he can to try to improve, you know, the offensive struggles that he's had. Uh, but that takes a more concerted effort that takes more people uh, and it takes more information. Uh, it's just a bigger job. It's a bigger task. Uh, whereas in the minor leagues, uh, it's much easier because we all have this goal of developing the player and getting him to the big leagues. And you guys are almost the same age. You're both 35. Brian, you're actually younger than Rich Hill. Is that purely an advantage for you that you are recently out of the game and more or less the same age as some of the players that you're talking to? Or are there cases where, you know, people don't expect to get advice from someone who looks like them? They're used to hearing from guys who are 20 years older and have been in baseball, uh, you know, for decades and decades. Is that purely an advantage for you or are there ways in which it's a a challenge also? I I think not having a formal role helps uh, in that I'm not an authority figure over these guys. I'm not directly their pitching coach or or somebody of that nature i'm more of a teammate or somebody like a mental skills uh department person and i'm really just out there hanging out with them uh looking out for their best interests because ultimately i'm I'm trying not to share my opinion i'm trying to share quality information that represents more future potential for the player whether that's in career earnings or uh, improved production or, you know, more safety and security for their family. Really, if you put the player first, then it's amazing how much they open up to you when they feel like you're operating for a selfish reason or to save your job or, or something like that, where it's not in their best interest. I think you get more of a closed minded reaction. And so I, I think being roughly the same age having played against these guys in the recent past, having been teammates with a majority of them at some point in the past, whether it was the fall league or the minor leagues or playing against them in the college world series. I think that in the short term definitely helps and and gets the buy-in and they let their guard down around me. 
uh, which it, it could be tougher in the future as I get older and, and that age gap grows. But I think uh, definitely being younger than some of the guys on the team is an advantage. And I think as my reputation uh, grows for, you know, offering help to these guys, I, I hope that as I age, I'm able to still create that bond with them and, and not build up barriers. And I mean, it kind of amazes me that you think there's so much potential to change guys who have already reached a really high level and, and improve them because it's so hard to make the majors. There's so many players trying to do it that you would think that in order to make it, you'd pretty much have to have maxed out your talent already, right? Because if if you haven't, then the next guy who is almost as good as you but is using his talent in the best way possible would beat you out for that spot. So I would have thought that if you've gotten there, most likely you're already doing things efficiently. But as you showed with Rich Hill, that's maybe not the case. So John told a, a story at Saber Seminar about Brad Brock, who was with the Padres at the time and had a, a really effective fastball, but had gotten away with it just because he thought that he was supposed to mix up his pitches and it wasn't working as well for him. And you just kind of had a quick conversation with him on the plane and pointed that out and got him back on track. And I mean, how many players do you think are out there that really have the potential to make a significant change just by, you know, altering their pitch selection or, or doing something that is purely intellectual that, you know, you could just decide to start doing if you wanted to and, and isn't necessarily related to your innate talent. Well, I think, I think that there's, uh, there's probably quite a few, especially on the pitching side where this can happen in a, in a proactive sense where you have like a, like a scouting reporter, you have a, a attack plan. Um, we've seen it to a certain extent with, with Kyle Hendricks this year, you know, you have somebody I always think about these problems from, uh, you know, like the, the what and the who and the why, you know, like what, what is the objective? Uh, what is the information? Um, who is doing it and why are we doing it? And like with Kyle, for example, you know, he had, he had gone through a phase where he was getting hit. He was throwing a lot of fastballs away, uh, behind in the count and he was getting hit, you know, like high OPS off of that, off that particular pitch. And, you know, our, our people that do our scouting reports and our advanced scouting for the major leagues realize that he could just change the location of that fastball and change the pitch type and, and that exact thing. Instead of throwing a 2-1, you know, sinker down and away, he could throw a, he could throw a 2-1 fastball up and in to like a left-handed hitter, for example. But Kyle had, has the ability to execute that, you know, right? So the physical part of it is taken care of. Now it's just a part of, now it's just a, a question of, mastering the strategy for him, you know, helping him master the strategy and using data, uh, giving it to somebody like that. He, he, he now takes that information. He reads it. He believes in it. And he, he has the ability already to go out and execute and throw the ball where he wants to throw it. And then you see all of a sudden this guy going from, you know, the Kyle Hendricks of the last two seasons to a guy that strikes out eight or nine a game or goes out and has, you know, eight innings with 12 punch outs, uh, which is not something you would, would expect from somebody throwing, you know, 87 to 90 with a, with a decent change up and, and kind of a random, random breaking ball that he throws every once in a while. But it's a great case of exactly what we're talking about of at the major league level, somebody, somebody, um, um, improving, uh, in a big way without making any physical adjustments, um, simply using the information that we have for him and buying into it. Right. Um, and, and kind of to echo what Brian was talking about as well about relating to players. Uh, he really hit the nail on the head. Um, when you don't come from a position of authority, but when you come from this position of almost like service, right, where I am here 
to help you do whatever you want me to do. Like we were teammates before I played against you. Um, or I got, you know, in spring training this year, I got, I got really close with our pitching staff in the, in the major leagues because, um, I was the coach that was in charge of their bunting practice every day. And so we, we used to joke that my job was to get the bunting done so they could make their tea times at like 1115. And so we'd get out there early. I'd have a stereo. We'd play music and I'd pump those. I'd pump those balls into the machine and they would get the bunts down and they would, they would bet each other on who was better. Uh, we'd have a good time and we'd get them out of there in 15 minutes and they'd get their work done, right? And they did it like a, this happy, positive fashion. And in doing that with them, I'm, I'm, I'm buying some credibility as somebody that's on their side, uh, somebody that doesn't want them to be out on the field all day, somebody that understands the grind. Um, I'm 162 games, so, someone that understands the deal, the, the, you know, the enormity of playing in Chicago and, and what that pressure situation is like and, going back to 1908 and the way the media is. So now, you know, if I bring, I can be a good conduit of information to them. You know, if, if somebody has a problem or if a coach has a problem with somebody or communicating with somebody, it makes it really easy for me to go talk to those guys. Uh, because, you know, when we're talking about Kyle Hendricks, we're talking about somebody whose major league debut that I caught, you know, and so working for the organization, I can go talk to Kyle in a way that I don't think very many people on earth have the ability to uh, have the ability to do because of the relationship that we have, and and like Brian said, the further I get out of playing, uh, the more strained and more difficult that relationship is going to be. But I imagine that my career will, will grow, and then I would hope in the future that we start we continue to hire people that replace this kind of like servant, you know, baseball servant mentality that we have instead of authoritative coach that tells you what to do. I ascribe to the idea that. You're in serve, you're, you're like a performance consultant that's in service to this player that's trying to provide them with the best information and the best ideas of, of, of how to do anything in life better, how to learn a new skill, how to acquire a new skill, but also how to understand information better and then go out and apply that on the field and perform. And, and it's much easier to get that message across when they believe, uh, that you're there only for them and, and you don't have any kind of like self-interest or gain in the situation other than seeing them succeed. And I think you both mentioned sort of how you've stressed sticking to your strengths, not necessarily worrying so much about the hitter's strength if you're a, a pitcher or or maybe vice versa. You want to execute the thing that you do well. Is that a universal truth or are there times where, you know, say you're just kind of a, a fringy arm, you're the last guy on the staff and you're about to face the best hitter in baseball or something? How do you balance the advanced scouting report that tells you, you know, so-and-so is weaker against pitches in this area or against pitches of this certain type with what you have? Yeah, I, I've i developed thresholds for every major league pitch. And for me, once a pitcher's physical talent and ability to execute crosses a certain threshold where the probabilities and the odds swing in his favor on that pitch, then... I get more confident in telling him to go against the grain and and leverage that pitch to his advantage. Whereas pitchers below that those thresholds, you have to pitch more to the hitter's weaknesses because you're really trying to just limit damage. You know whether it's limit slug or or uh, you know just generate weak contact. You, you have to stay out of the hitter's hot zones. But your goal, both on the scouting side, on the development side, on the acquisition side is to identify pitchers that are above those thresholds and therefore you can leverage those strengths because as you as you acquire pitchers that are on the edges of the bell curve they can do things that the rest of the pitchers can't and for the hitters you're generating a unique experience in the batter's box where they don't see pitches of that nature very often and so they have no reference for how to hit them and that's where 
those types of pitchers become very valuable and very unique and you can become much more innovative in how they pitch, you know, and Rich Hill's an example of that. And so for me, that's, that's where the ex- excitement is because you start getting into the predictive analytics and identifying pitchers with those qualities as early as possible in their careers, you know, all the way down to the 16 year olds in the, in the international market. And to me, that's the exciting part because you often don't see the fruit of those decisions for years or even a decade later. But then when they come about and they're implemented at the highest level, people are pretty amazed. And it, it's just a fun process um, and gets away from really traditional pitching uh, analysis and development. All right, before we continue the conversation, let's pause for a few words from our sponsors, including SeatGeek. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites wants to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that make it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. SeatGeek is always the first place I go to look for tickets to a game or concert because I'm a sports and music fan, and everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. With SeatGeek, you'll never need to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. We all live our lives in search engines. If we want something, if we don't know something, we pop it into the search bar. Three seconds later, we're smarter and we're satisfied. SeatGeek works the same way, but for buying tickets. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. So not only will you save some time, but you'll save some money too. Best of all, Ringer MLB Show listeners get a 20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get that $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, and then enter the promo code, which is RINGERMLB. Lastly, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. I also want to tell you about Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Some of my food this week came from Blue Apron. I had my first Blue Apron meal yesterday. When I signed up on the website, I said I liked fish, so they sent me some fish. I didn't know what it would be. Turns out it was curried catfish and coconut rice. I wasn't sure how I felt about curried catfish, but I know now that I like it. Took about 15 minutes to prep, another half hour to cook. All the instructions came on a nice glossy piece of paper, which was nice, because I have no idea what I'm doing. It was delicious. Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. and 99.5% of food deserts. Can't be fun to live in a food desert. Now you no longer have to. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste. Cooking together builds strong bonds. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. And those who spend a lot eating out or at high-end grocery chains, which definitely describes me as a Manhattan resident, can now spend under $10 per person for a healthy, delicious meal. For that small amount of money, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients. Some of the meals available in August, spiced pork burgers with goat cheese and cucumber corn salad, summer vegetable and quinoa bowl with fairy tale eggplants, shishito peppers and corn, chicken tiga tacos with summer squash and tomato salsa. I apologize if I'm making your mouth water, but if I am, there's something you can do about it. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash ringer MLB. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash ringer MLB. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, back to our Baker and Bannister chat. And I know that at least one of you mentioned that when you're preparing for an opposing lineup and you're looking at the reports, you would pay attention to 
who's been hitting, who's been locked in with the idea that maybe this guy will be more likely to lay off a pitch in a certain location than he normally would be or or that some other player in the lineup would be. And I guess the, the sabermetric hardline perspective about hitting streaks and, and players being hot and cold is not necessarily that they don't exist, that you can't get locked in or be seeing the ball well at a particular time, but just that it's not very predictive and that, you know, you can go from being locked in to not being locked in and, and they're really, you know, at least statistically doesn't seem to be that strong a case that you can predict how someone will do, you know, even the next day based on how he's been doing lately. So would you dispute that based on your experience? Have you found that not to be the case that you would actually pay pretty close attention to recent trends? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would dispute it, but I think that the effect that it has is much smaller than we actually think. And, and like you're talking about, what, what I'm, what I was thinking about when I'm thinking about like the, you know, I, I would actually watch the at bats too, because there's a big difference in looking at the numbers and seeing that somebody, you know, you look at the numbers and you see the, hey, oh, this guy is, he's 12 for his last 18. He must be on fire. Then you go watch the, you go watch him hit and you realize that, you know, five of those hits are like off the end of the bat, squibs down the third baseline that stayed fair or a jam shot flare the other way over the opposing infielder's head that just barely fell. When you, when you, when you take the time to watch the last 25, 30 at bats of guys, you start to see certain trends. You know, you start to see that, okay, this guy's getting in a position where his head's not moving. He seems to be recognizing pitches. And maybe we could, we could look at it from a different uh, perspective numbers wise. Like, well, you know, for the last 15 games, all of a sudden he's seeing an extra pitch in at bat. Um, which, which tells me that he's very comfortable in the batter's box right now or his, or his strikeout percentage is down. There's, and you know, you obviously have to weigh that with who he's been facing and who he's been pitching against, but you might, might be able to find a little something in a certain situation that can help. And maybe it, maybe it helps two or three pitches in, in a game as opposed to every single at bat that guy has, because you're exactly right. You know, you go, you know, baseball is so streaky and hot and cold. Uh, and further, the hitter doesn't have very much control. Like he could have, he could have lined out 25 times in a row and he's 0 for 25. And, and if you just look at a stat sheet, you have no idea that this guy seems to be seeing the ball pretty well. I always thought about it too from a, from a hitting perspective. You know, the baseball odds are so long that I always thought that every time I made an out, I was closer to getting a hit the next time. I feel like the, the math says that, but that was the way that I kind of positively framed everything. Oh, I'm over my last 22. Well, there's no way I'm not getting a hit in my third, my 23rd at bat. And I would take, I would take some of that into account as well. Um, I would look at the guys that had these long offers, uh, when they were coming in. And sometimes I'd be wary in certain situations with them if the matchup seemed right. Not that there was a, there was a track record between them and the pitcher because I never really buyed into that. But if it was a, it was a good player that had some consistent success, like a, like for example, an 0 for 18 Buster Posey might be really dangerous because you, you feel like there's going to be some sort of mean reversion and he's going to get hot and you don't want it to be when you're there and, and you're catching. Um, you don't want that to be the game. So you have to worry about it from kind of both ends of the spectrum and it would, it would affect pitch, pitch calls, but it wouldn't affect him, I think, to this great, uh, rate that, that we may think. It would affect maybe one or two pitches a game. You know, the difference between what you're going to throw three to or you're going to go out of the strike zone or into the strike zone in that situation because we're going to worry about having the next guy get us or, you know, are we going to throw a slider here or a fastball here? Those are the, you know, those two or three pitches. I think that's what I would get from looking at those guys, their last 25, 30 at bats before they came in and played us. Um, I wouldn't alter the game plan that much, uh, because you're exactly right. The, those, those numbers and trends don't necessarily mean anything other than, what their kind of level of perception at the plate is at that moment in time. 
And I wonder whether there's much of a role for analytics potentially in-game, you know, mid-outing, mid-at-pat, mid-inning, whatever it is. I could certainly imagine down the road someone like you with your kind of background being in the dugout as a bench coach, that kind of role. Do you think that you would be able to apply statistical knowledge in some way that would be helpful in-game, or is it mostly something that comes in handy during the preparation before the game? I mean, you know, if you're watching the pitcher and he is doing something differently that day, you know, maybe you could check the numbers somehow at some point in the future and see that something is different about him than it usually is and and adjust in some way to that. Do you think that there is some potential for for that kind of on-the-fly adjustment in the future? Yes. Uh, You know, I think that they're putting iPads in the dugout is something that's going to change baseball a little bit because now you're going to have the ability to not just have to flip through a stat sheet, but to check information as it's happening and maybe looking at a a current record of the game, like pitch selection and, and calls and what's been thrown and where they've been thrown and have a better understanding of it from the dugout would maybe give you a chance to try to make an adjustment. Um, I think it's going to be more about, uh, it'll be more in line with things like pitch selection and game calling, not just from, not game calling from the catcher's perspective, but maybe more like scouting report, uh, and strategy implementation. You'll see better if they're following the plan that you set forth ahead of time, or if your plan isn't working, you know, perhaps providing secondary strategies to attack, uh, an opposing team. I think that's maybe where it will fall in. As I really kind of talk it through in my head and, and talk it through out loud, actually, I, I think that when, when things start to go off the rails and scouting reports, there's times where they don't work. I mean, it just it's baseball. It's, it's such a random event sometimes that it's, it's not going to work. You have to make an adjustment. I think that's where it will help in the future um, is with coming up with alternative theories and alternative plans, having those on hand that you can access and then adjusting in the middle of the game when things aren't working might, might extend pitchers outings. Uh, it might, it might help performance change drastically in the middle of the game. But again, all of this being contingent upon one thing that is the, is the key to all of baseball, which is pitch to pitch execution. And Brian, I'm, I'm wondering how much your language changes. If you're talking to, say, Tom Tippett, who heads up the Red Sox stat department, or you're going down to the field to talk to a player, how much will you alter the way that you present what you're talking about? And, and as someone who I know cares very much about the visual as a former art major and a serious photographer, how does that come in handy as you're trying to present information in a, in a way that players can appreciate? I, I think the important thing is when you're talking with somebody in the front office or you're talking with player development staff or scouts, you talk a lot about the value and the potential and the actual grades on what a pitcher does. Uh, when you're talking directly with a pitcher, you know, you, you don't tell him that their fastball is only a 55 and that everybody has a consensus on that because <laughs> that really doesn't accomplish anything or it might even put doubt in the pitcher's head. It, it's better if they believe they're better than what they actually are uh-huh. because they're more likely to go out and execute. For me, and I've always tried to come up with a way to express this, but my, my goal on a daily basis with the major league staff is to go around and try to optimize the performance of the team while having as little a disturbance as possible. And so, you know, we're, we're looking to make this pitch a little bit better or, you know, our, our staff is fly ball heavy this year. And, you know, how can we induce a few more ground balls in certain situations or, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm constantly monitoring the league as a whole on a macro level. I'm constantly monitoring our staff and how we're performing and then breaking that down to smaller and smaller levels 
and trying to find ways to optimize it in real time without really messing with anybody or, or disturbing their routines or their mechanics or anything like that. And so that can happen with just very simple conversations. And really, you're just on a daily basis trying to add value or get guys to think about something they do a little bit differently that bottom line should impact total production of the team. Um, and so you're trying to ignore the noise, but add value and, and then make people forget you even exist. Yeah. And John, you mentioned that there's a lot of value in just figuring out a way to clear players' heads and get them to stop thinking at crucial moments in the game. And so you've practiced meditation with a, a lot of the young Cubs players. How difficult is that compared to, say, getting someone to change their swing or, you know, change the, the way they throw pitches to change the way they think during the game? Is that easier or harder? And are the benefits smaller or greater? I think it's easier. Uh, I think it's easier. I think guys are tied to, you know, the stuff that they've done since they were a kid, especially when it comes to a a physical technique, whether it be a baseball swing where their hands are going to be positioned or a, a delivery. Um, and it's, uh, you know, like we were talking about earlier, it's much easier um, for our younger players to implement stuff like meditation, kind of new wave ideas, you know, new age, new age thinking, growth mindset thinking that that's easier to to put that program into play at the lower levels so that when, when the guys get to the higher levels of the minor leagues and the major leagues, they already think that way. And we're fortunate that we have, you know, Darnell McDonald, uh, you know, former player that's kind of same thing as me, has that, has the respect of all the players. Um, it doesn't, doesn't serve necessarily as a coach. He's more of like this assistant and his, or servant, like we were saying, and his, um, his job is the implementation of this meditation program. And further, we have the, we have the backing and the support of our major league manager as well who is somebody that believes in it and does it and, and talks to the major league team about it. I mean, we had a uh, full major league team guided meditations led by Darnell in spring training, and he still goes and does that when he goes out and visits our major league team. They all show up for it because they believe in it and they buy into it. So it's an easy thing that guys can do. And I think that most of the people that participate in that activity, uh, they feel much better after two, three, five minutes. So once once the most difficult part is getting people to try it. Once they try it, they realize that it's a, it's a skill that they can build and get stronger. Um, and then that, you know, is kind of, uh, armor for, for pressure. Um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a helmet for negative thoughts that kind of blocks them. Uh, you know, you, you build up that skill, you can do it. It's an easy thing to do. And that, that's much easier to convince somebody of, um, because you can also show them, you know, some scientific data that backs it up and supports it. And we can say, we can show him studies. We can show him videos of Kobe Bryant talking to Oprah Winfrey about how this is what he does every day when he wakes up for 15 minutes and how it's an important part of his routine. It's been one of the most important parts of his routine as a superstar NBA player um, is this process. So we show him that stuff and guys buy in pretty easily. But the moment you go up to a player that maybe you don't really know um, or a coach comes up to a guy and says, hey, you know, you've been putting your hands at your chest. Why don't you start them over your head? Um, you immediately kind of like lose credibility and guys are guys get kind of frustrated and upset uh, the moment you want to change them physically. But it's easier to attack it, I, I feel like, from the mental side. Um, it's easier to attack something like meditation and, and, and implement that on an, on an organizational level because it doesn't have to be customized necessarily to each person like a physical skill would. Is there an app we can download if we want to meditate the way the Chicago Cubs do? Or do you develop your own proprietary one? No, no. We use a lot of different ones. We've used uh, Calm. We've used Headspace. And we've used Will, W-H-I-L. That's the one that I like the best because it has the uh, it has the Search Inside Yourself course on it that they did for the executives at Google. And so I think it's, I don't know how much it costs a year. It's like 10 bucks a month or something. But that's my that's my personal favorite from the research that I've done on them. 
But what we do a lot is we have um, we teach the guys to kind of learn how to do it themselves. And when Darnell goes from team to team, he sits and leads people and guides people in the fashion. Like he is the he is the app for the Cubs. Um, he leads it every day, sunrise meditation and spring training. He'll do it again in instructional league um, for everyone. He's the main kind of motivating, driving force behind the whole program. Um, and we are like extremely lucky to have somebody that everybody respects and loves because of the personality that's willing to take the time and have this be his job. I mean, he obviously loves it. Uh, but yeah, I would say Will, Calm, or Headspace are all good places to start. You can't really go wrong. It's just simply five minutes in the morning, reset yourself before you move forward. All right. So Brian, I know you need to get to the ballpark so you can start creating the next Rich Hill. So we will just uh, wrap up with a quick little lightning round. I'm interested in your opinion on what the most exciting potential sports science technology or or frontier is. Is there a a particular type of technology that you think is going to yield the biggest benefits? I'm really interested in the medical and biomechanical side of pitching. And I've really gone down a path in my own research that is showing a lot of promise on the actual cause of Tommy John. And it's a lot different from how the public perceives it. And so not only is that exciting for identifying and preventing it for the Red Sox, but hopefully down the road, shedding some light on helping the general public and helping the amateurs out there just how to deal with it, how to prevent it, and uh, shed more insight into into the causes of it. So that's that's something that's really exciting from my perspective. And you guys are are both kind of these hybrids. You have the the baseball playing background, you have the statistics background, and you're sort of fusing the front office and the field staff. And I don't know if there are other players in exactly the same role that you guys are, but I'm curious about how long either of you, both of you, think it will be until every major league team has a, a Baker or a Bannister. Yeah, I don't think it's too far away. I think that a lot of time, like a lot of most of the teams have these special assistants. And what you see a lot of times with special assistants are these, uh, you you see guys that were perhaps great players in a city that the team likes seeing them around. You know, like we have with the Cubs, we have Ryan Sandberg as our ambassador. I think that you're going to start to see more of those guys kind of be like fall into that ambassador role. Whereas in the past they were special assistants and they would come to spring training and they would try to help and they'd be there for a couple days. And you're going to see more kind of, and I don't want to, I don't want to offend Brian here, but more players of my, and you know, the level that Brian and I played at where <laughs> we had to really, we had to really think and work towards improving to just get to the big leagues and stay. Um, and, and that's when I was, uh, while I was playing, those were the coaches that I always looked for. I wanted to find the guys where it was really hard for them, um, but they had some sustained success and learn what I could from them. Um, I, I always laugh when, you know, you, they hire Barry Bonds, for example, as the hitting coach with the Marlins, because I think about it in terms of if I were a player there and the questions that I would have to ask him, you know, hey, Barry, did you ever have um, a problem, you know, picking up the left-handed breaking ball? And oh, you, you didn't. Okay. So, did you ever, did you ever swing and miss too much? You didn't do that either. Okay. Did you ever, <laughs> you know, like it'd be so hard to relate for me to relate to Barry Bonds. And, and I think that finding people that you can relate to, like Brian and I both, that that we're saying we, we we care more about the players than we do necessarily about ourselves. We want to see them improve and succeed. And we had to really think about our own careers and our own game and our own, you know, ways that we practice and, and information that we use and things that we thought about. We had to think about that more than a lot of people uh, to get ourselves into the big leagues and to stay there for a little bit. I think that teams are going to, are going to find that when they can have these roles and they can hire more people like us, they'll, they'll see some benefit. Not to, not to toot my own horn or, or Brian's. Uh, I, I, I will toot Brian's. He's really good, smarter than I am. But, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a smart role to have, you know, people that can relate to the players that don't come at them from a higher, uh, higher position in the hierarchy, but that come at them from kind of just below with the shared experience. 
I mean, it, it, that totally makes sense in any field uh, as somebody that can be a good assistant or helper in whatever your organizational goals are. Brian, you want to put a, a number on it? When does your advantage disappear? I think roles like John and I, it's going to continue to expand because we're moving more towards being able to quantify the impact front office personnel because we're not going around dishing out pure opinions, but we're dishing out tangible information that's data backed that's having a direct impact on the players and therefore anything that can be quantified as a good investment for an organization and and you multiply your value many times over in in surplus value or future value teams are willing to invest in something they can quantify and so as you can provide that as long as you're a good investment you're going to be hired or you're going to have a role because you're having a positive impact on uh, the bottom line and so i think that's why Within the next 10 years, you're going to have people like John and I in every organization because you can quantify the impact and it's not just title inflation or making a bigger front office just to make a bigger front office. But if there's actual real impact that can, that can be quantified, then there's financial value attached to that. And lastly, are both of you kind of married to the idea of working with players for the rest of your career in some capacity? Or can you envision yourself getting farther away from the field, maybe getting involved in procuring those players and trading them and signing them and <laughs> releasing them and being the, the guy who has the uh, ultimate control over them, which you probably dreaded when you were players yourselves? So I, I personally like the interpersonal relationship of working with the people that are in the in the middle of the grind. That's the that's what I appreciate most. And, and I, I haven't thought that far ahead. Uh, and I will say that one of the greatest things that ever happened to us was the Yankees promising uh, Alex Rodriguez $27 million or whatever to do a special assistant role next year. He, <laughs> he, he really raised the, uh, he raised the bar for how much we can get paid. And so there might, there might be a lot more financial security in this. In fact, the day that that happened, I was with the team when uh, our major league team when they were in Oakland. And the first person that called was Ryan Dempster, uh, jokingly demanding a massive raise after after A Rod after A Rod retired. Uh, but yeah, no, for me personally, I, I like the I like the interpersonal part. I think that my future is going to lie in a in a role similar to um, what Bob Tewksbury does for the Red Sox, uh, which is go and finish some more education in sports psychology um, and continue to grow my own understanding of what goes on inside of the head and, and how I can relate that to the field and and help players as they go through the the struggles and dealing with the pressure of, of, of playing baseball. But at the same time, I think continuing to learn more about the, the statistical side of baseball is going to help me relate to those players um, in the future because it, we're not long from everybody understanding this information and it being a, I mean, it already is an enormous part of baseball, but from the player's side, them understanding it better. And if you, if you can't relate to them, you know, you're going to have trouble reaching them. Brian, you feel the same way? You know, self-evaluation is such an important part of being a good player or uh, a good member of the front office. And I believe my strength is playing the role of the good cop. I'm not the bad guy. I, I am much more of the good guy in, in building up or establishing confidence or shedding light on something new. And so my goal was to create an interdepartmental role, which the Red Sox have been generous enough to, to let me work in and, and try and add value and compliment everybody without infringing on their jobs or threatening them. And so I feel like that's where I operate the best and it's not firing someone or releasing someone or anything of that nature that uh, is in a negative sense. And so I, I continue to believe that I will have the most impact when I'm being positive and, and helping people and serving them as opposed to the opposite. And so you know, I'm very comfortable in what I do right now because I think it utilizes my strengths and I feel like I add the most value to the Red Sox organization 
uh, in what I'm doing right now. All right. Well, I know you guys are working for two different teams that are trying to beat each other, but I, I kind of wish you were on the same side because uh, I'd, I'd like you to take this act on the road. <laughs> I like the, the Baker and Bannister duo is uh, always an entertaining time. So thanks, guys, for coming on and sharing all this knowledge with us. Thank you Thank very you, much. Ben. All right. We will leave it there. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Baker and Bannister. And really, if someone like that can create one rich hill or make one player a win or two better than a replacement-level coach could have, they'd really be worth a rod money. So you can find John on Twitter at ManBearWolf, and you can find Brian on Twitter at RealBanny. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a nice end to your week and weekend. We will be back with new episodes of The Ringer MLB Show next week.